Hello world and welcome to Her Royal Science. Thank you so much for joining us for today's interview. Today we'll be chatting with one of our most beloved guests from season one. She was featured in our second episode, Get a Cat, and recently completed her PhD in engineering in Boston. If you haven't yet listened to her story, please do so. In this episode, we'll talk about her experience wrapping up her PhD during COVID and her future plans. But for our listeners, would you mind doing a quick recap of what you studied for your PhD? Hello, hello. Yes, I can. So uh, a lot of the work that I did in my PhD was very interdisciplinary. So I think as a quick, you know, the 10,000 foot uh, view, as they say, would be studying material properties at different length scales. So looking at them either on the nanoscale where material properties change, as I discussed very briefly in the uh, last episode, mm -hmm. uh, and also at the macro and mesoscale as well. So looking at materials, how they change their properties across different length scales. Okay, with the hopes of applying it in what setting? That's a great question. So I think the applications of a lot of the projects that I worked on was more about understanding material properties. So whenever you want to um, you know, apply any kind of material to a particular object or a project or some kind of device, you have to understand how it's going to behave both at the length scale and also under the conditions that you're going to be using it. So I think it comes down to a fundamental question of material science of we have to kind of understand this material before we use it. And so a lot of the work that I did was trying to, you know, we, we can if we have a particular material or a polymer at the bulk scale, so something that you can touch and feel that's large enough for you to be able to observe and characterize, when you make it much smaller or when you heat it up or when you do other kinds of modifications to the material, you can change the material properties in a way that can't be predicted using the properties that you have from the bulk state. So there, there's a lot of interesting phenomena that happens both at the nanoscale and at the microscale. And also, you know, the way that you characterize the material could really affect the properties that you get out of it. So there's a lot of nitty gritty into it, but I think to kind of answer your question, it's uh, the, the goal of these projects is to understand the materials much, much earlier than it is to, you know, apply them in a particular setting. I was thoroughly impressed, thoroughly impressed by your defense. You did a phenomenal job and you made it accessible to someone like me who knows oh. nothing, nothing about engineering, <laughs> nothing about physics, nothing about anything that you really talked about. But I was able to actually relay that information to someone like my mom, which I think was impressive. I, I really appreciate that kind of feedback. But I think, you know, what it comes down to is a ton of practice mm. to and knowing your material and kind of practicing, uh, you know, disseminating that kind of really complicated information to a variety of different audiences. So I really mm -hmm. appreciate that feedback, but, but it's, you know, it's something that I've worked really hard on. And I think it's something that's not really necessarily a skill that most people um, gain in grad school, but I feel like that's one of the most important skills that I've gained over, you know, hours and hours of practice in group meetings or in uh, at conferences or in different types of settings where I, you know, I, I did a lot of outreach. So having to explain my science to like, high schoolers or even mm -hmm. younger people who like don't even know what nano what nano means right mm. that's that's a really complicated thing to do but it, it just it just takes a lot of practice and it's much much easier to get that practice early on when you know there's not a ton at stake than it is when you're at your job and you have to talk to a client and you don't know how to break down this complicated task right so definitely comes down to practice and yeah I'm glad that you said that because I think a lot of people think that it does just happen 
And you just mm-hmm. walk into a space and you know how to do that. But I've also had to practice a lot to cater the stuff that I do to every type of audience that I might come in contact with. Now, my question now to follow up what you just said is how did you find the time to fit in the different types of outreach that you were interested in doing? Because grad school is incredibly busy and I can imagine the projects that you were doing were also very time consuming. That's certainly true. And it's, uh, it's so funny. Somebody else asked me that recently. So I had to like sit down and think about like, if I was so busy, why did I, because it was somebody who like, didn't, um, how do I put this nicely? They didn't understand the impact that outreach would have, you know, this mm-hmm. person, you know, was, yeah, whatever, for whatever reason, they didn't understand that the impact of outreach, you know, looking back on my journey, and this is, it's really funny to think about, but science or like disseminating science is all about storytelling. And so mm-hmm. in practicing telling my science, I've kind of figured out my, I know you like to say this, what is your science story? Yeah. I've kind of <laughs> gone back and kind of had to look at like, where, how did I get here? And mm-hmm. what it ends up being is that I had a lot of people kind of go out of their way to explain, you know, their jobs to me or like what they were interested in to me. And so it was these really small interactions that put me on a path that I was not really destined for otherwise. Like there wasn't really, you know, you don't like sit on a track and you just keep going forward and then you'll go to grad school, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was those small interactions that I had. The way I think about it is like, um, what's that game? Pinball? Um, where like the ball hits the little corner and it mm-hmm. like pivots into a complete like ricochets into another corner. So it was those small interactions that I had, you know, uh, one of the ones that I really love telling is a year before I was uh, applying to colleges, I met this uh, woman who was who had at the time, I believe she worked for NASA and she was talking about the projects that she was doing. And it was like a light bulb that mm-hmm. switched off in my brain. And I was like, this is exactly the kind of thing I want to be doing. So that's kind of what got st- got me started in engineering in the first place. So it was, mm-hmm. you know, it was her taking the time to explain. And, you know, she was like a scientist at NASA talking to a high schooler like that. You know, that's <laughs> not part of her job. I'm sure it was like not the highlight of her day. But because of those interactions, it's I feel very strongly that it's my responsibility to pay it forward. Mm-hmm. You never know what kind of interaction might you know, change somebody's life. And I I know that's putting a lot of pressure on, you know, both the people who have advised me and also, you know, my advisees. But I really think it's the aggregation of these small interactions that really, you know, makes the decisions that impact your life. So it's really important for me to, uh, you know, you asked, where do I find the time? You know, just I have to find it. That's kind of not an option because I have to contribute. I have to be able to communicate this, especially to um, communities or to um, to younger students mm-hmm. and you know youths who may not have ever seen like a woman that looks like me mm-hmm. um, doing engineering or doing grad school you know I got a lot of those questions <laughs> uh, in outreach they're like what do you do like why are you doing this and how did you get in here and you know all yeah. the questions of like are you really in grad school it's like no <laughs> I'm lying <laughs> I'm not in grad school so you know it's I think it's really impactful because it it really uh, it can really accumulate and it could potentially you know it, it could also direct somebody away from the field you know maybe they decide this is not what they want to do but I think it's really important to have uh, some kind of uh, impact anyway. I love science. I love, love, love doing research. And I'm a, like an experimentalist at heart, whatever, all mm-hmm. those things. I would not have spent all those years in grad school and also in undergrad if I didn't. So I, I'm not going to you know, justify that. But I think mm-hmm. the thing that made my grad school experience meaningful, the thing that kind of energized me besides good data, but, you know, 
good data is hard to come by, was these experiences, right? Of like these yeah. types of, you know, interactions with people where it's like the, even the failed experiments that I did were mm. able to inform something for somebody else, right? And so yeah. I think that really, that really kept me going. So kind of going back to your question of where did I find the time? It's like, it wasn't so much that I had to find the time. I was like, that was such an important part of grad school for me. Mm-hmm. Now, let's talk a little bit about the experience of you wrapping up your PhD in 2020, which Uh. (laughs) is probably one of the most tumultuous years that our generation has lived through, at least in terms of our adult years. I know a lot has Mm -hmm. happened over the last 20 to 25 years that we were witness to, but this is special because we are adults and we have an adult perspective and it affects our lives and our education and our professional lives so significantly and you were about to defend. How did you wrap up your PhD during the COVID pandemic? Okay, so I have to preface all of this by saying that so we are in uh, fall of 2020 and <laughs> things have already been so tumultuous. Like, God knows next week, like the, there's going to be like an earthquake where I live. So like, so like I'm, I'm saying this in early fall. So if something terrible, something more terrible has happened, you know, I'm unaware. I'm like blissfully unaware right now. But you're right. It's been a, like an, a, a disaster and it's been so difficult to grapple with everything. So part yeah. of me is just like, it's still March. I'm still dreaming. I know. You know? It's, uh, yeah, I know. But- <laughs> But uh, more specifically to your question of how was wrapping up my PhD during the pandemic and kind of during this whole the tumultuousness of this year. Yeah, it's a really great question. So I, I really feel that I got very, very lucky, which is a crazy thing to say. Uh, first of all, on, on the base level of like, I am healthy, my family's healthy. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people can't say that. So, you know, fundamentally, that's the first thing. And I feel very grateful to have had the resources of you know, being in a in a large academic institution. So having mm-hmm. access to things like health insurance and, mm-hmm. you know, being able to work from home. I think a lot of people didn't have that. So, you know, when I say I feel lucky, I, I know it's been a crazy year, but I, I know that it can be so, so much worse. So mm-hmm. anytime I want to complain, I just want to think about, you know, the blessings that I have had and the, the uh, how grateful I am for those. So I'll, I'll, you know, that's the kind of preface at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, that's the general I feel lucky. But then the second part of I feel lucky is um I so I wanted to graduate earlier in the year so you know the first the normal ish (laughs) two months of the year and so Mm -hmm. there was a um kind of a painful negotiation process that I went through with my um advisor which was unsuccessful so I had asked to graduate because I felt that at the time I had uh succeeded in the projects that I'd wanted to Mm -hmm. etc etc and so there was kind of a resounding, absolutely not. And there's a lot more to be done, which, you know, to be fair, I think that's um, what a lot of advisors say. But I will also, you know, as a quick side note, um, there is maybe not the healthiest relationship with the advisor. So there's mm. uh, some, you know, pressure there. So, you know, whenever I, I want to c- kind of fit in a little bit of advice here. So that was a really, really painful time for me. And it was really painful because I think the challenge of the advisor advisee relationship is that there's such a huge imbalance of power. So when you know you want to graduate and the person's like, no, there's literally nothing you can do, right? Like there, I mean, there's some steps that you can take, but it's extremely challenging. And so it was a really hard time for me. And so I reached out to my mentors outside of my advisor and kind of got some advice. And I really had to push back. And I think this is like 
So if I were to highlight, you know, you asked me about like the, the science that I did in my um, grad school, but if I were to say something non-science that I learned in grad school, the biggest thing was, and I, I did learn this from my advisor who I had to do this for, was push back, you know, fight for yourself, keep pushing because, you know, people are there to tell you no, but you have to be the person not to tell no to yourself. Because if, you know, if you're not fit for a job or like if you're not fit for something, they will just not hire you, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> they're not forced to do anything. But you can't be the person at the beginning to be like, oh, they're not going to. So projecting that onto my decision making of like, I'm not even going to bother, right? Yeah. That was such a big thing in grad school for me of like, just you know, um, apply for scholarships or like apply for awards, try for things, ask for things. If they say no, that's that's on them. You know, they said no, that's fine. You move on. You ask for another thing. So sorry, long story short, I asked to graduate. They said no. It was very, very challenging. And uh, I mentioned before that I'm an experimentalist. So a lot of my stuff require actually all of my stuff require me to be in lab. My work didn't involve a lot of uh, simulation or finite element modeling, so I, mm -hmm. I did have to be there in person. And so when everything shut down um, earlier this year, there was kind of this awkward moment where, first of all, we didn't really know what was going to happen, right? So it's really hard to be like, well, just sit at home for a month and then you'll be back, right? And so that's actually not what happened at all. Basically, what ended up happening was I just kind of argued that I would make you know, I would work on one last paper based on results that I already had, and then I'd just be out. I think it's really, really challenging, you know, in addition to not having that kind of nonverbal communication that you have in person, but also, um, you know, the, the situation is challenging onto itself. And so I would just say that it was really challenging. And I constantly had to like, there were so many times where I would propose something and then they'd be like, well, no, this is not sufficient. Like you would need to take X, Y, and Z data. And then, you know, I can't take X, Y, and Z data. So I'd have to reiterate. So I think it was mm -hmm. just, you know, me being a little bit um, like stoneheaded, just kind of moving forward, just keep, keep iterating, keep trying to get that yes, keep trying to get that yes. I also understand that, you know, having this in access to the lab or to the experimental setting was kind of the reason that I was able to graduate in the first place. Mm. I think if we were there, I'd still be there for like a couple of months because, you know, as any kind of uh, research advisor always wants you to do more research yeah. when you're cheap. <laughs> I certainly, I, I feel, uh, as I said, very grateful, but I'm also, I feel very, very badly for the people who are experimentalists in the middle of their PhD. I, I really hope people got to do something else with their data, right? Um, but yeah, I mean, it's challenging what to say. And it's also like, it's not over. <laughs> so it's yeah. really hard to have like, um, any kind of, you know, general conclusions about the thing. I just, you know, if I were to, um, summarize it, I just feel lucky that it, it happened this way because mm -hmm. I was able to graduate. Um, but it also had really bad side effects for anyone who's trying to, you know, apply for jobs anytime this year or next year. There's yeah. going to be massive challenges because firms and companies are just, you know, um, the same kind of uncertainty that we feel they're feeling too, but then they're applying it to their hiring system. So, and I also read that some uh, departments are not hiring PhD students. Yeah, I heard that. Yeah, yeah, there are a couple of schools that are just not even doing intake this year entirely, right. which is, yeah, it's the world has completely changed. I did want to ask, did you feel like you mm -hmm. could go to your other supervisory committee members when your your primary supervisor was saying that, no, I don't think you're ready? It's a little bit of a tricky situation because I think what was really important is that 
um, I had a, I felt that the relationship that I had with my committee, at least some of my committee members, was very, very close. Mm-hmm. And so I think if it, you know, there were some people on my committee, I would not feel comfortable going to them. Mm-hmm. So it's really, I think it's really important to have a relationship with the committee members or maybe just like one or two um, who, you know, know you as a person outside mm-hmm. of who you are as your main advisor's advisee, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't know how this works in other people's departments, but in ours, typically it was just like, you know, you work for your advisor, maybe you have some collaborators, but like you kind of really, after you're done with your classes, you kind of really only interact with that one person. Yeah. Um, but it was really important for me, just because I had some other challenges during grad school, to, to, to reach out to other people as well. So over time, they kind of understood the nature of our relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think they were able to facilitate some of that. And then another component of what you, I think, is really important to have on your committee, especially if you have, you know, not the most kind person as your advisor, which, you know, happens very often, Uh, Mm -hmm. is to have somebody, I like this word, who's an advocate for you, right? Mm -hmm. So somebody who can, you know, really mentors you in a way that like is beyond, you know, you get this data, get this result, go to this conference, get this paper, right? It's like, okay, what's your long-term plan? What are you trying to do with your life? What are your skills? What are the things that you need to be better at, et cetera? Mm -hmm. So, and then also if there's um, kind of department politics, you need someone to advocate for you. So I think it's really important to have someone like that, it could, you know, if you, if that person is your advisor, consider yourself very lucky because a lot of times that's not the case, Mm -hmm. but I definitely think you should have that person. And, you know, it could not be in your department. It could be somebody in your life. I, it just happened that mine was in my department. So I I feel very lucky to have, um, to have had an advocate. So I think uh, going back to your original question about being comfortable going to your committee, I think the onus is kind of on the person to mm-hmm. develop a committee that you work on those relationships such that you feel comfortable going to them. Not that you look back and be like, hey, can I go to this person? But you actually develop that relationship moving forward. And um, I, I know a lot of people who make their committees kind of based on their classes or based on um, kind of who they've TA'd for or mm-hmm. maybe people who are whose work is relevant to them. But, you know, try, you know, just hanging out with that person a little bit, try to figure out what their research is, try to figure out their style, um, talk to their students, try to get that kind of relationship because it really, really pays off. Mm. Do you feel like any of the experiences that you had in graduate school affected your desire to stay within academia? That's a really good question. So I am not in academia anymore, Mm -hmm. Uh, although it feels very weird because we've been home for forever. So this whole like I I also like didn't really get to say goodbye to anybody. So it still Mm -hmm. feels like I'm in grad school. But anyways, I think that it was a really interesting intersection of a couple of things that worked out for me of, you know, kind of deciding not to stay with academia, at least at least for the time being, which is that Different from what uh, most people's PhDs are, which is that, you know, you hyper focus on this one problem and you become Mm -hmm. you become the world's expert. I think I had a very different experience in that I worked on a lot of projects and Mm. I had uh, like a very diverse or like a very versatile set of skills. Right. I was maybe an expert in one particular subset of a particular subset. So like very, very, very small subset of something. But more generally, I think it was 
that I had a very diverse set of skills that happened mm -hmm. for whatever reason. And so, you know, when I was, um, and I mentioned this before of like applying for things, I applied for a couple of opportunities to be able to kind of see what the academic, the applying for uh, faculty position process is like. And so mm -hmm. I attended a couple of um, uh, kind of meetings and seminars like that. Um, and so there I kind of realized that not only was my background not really fit to continue, right, because they want somebody who's really an expert and they can expand upon their expertise with new kind of questions, right? Yeah. Um, but also, I think, I think on another hand, one of the reasons, uh, one of the ways in which grad school kind of informed my decisions to kind of leave, or I don't like the, I don't like the terminology of leave, I'll just say pivot, to kind of pivot away was kind of observing new faculty and trying to see, because, you know, for everything you want to, the balance of how much you like things and how much they, the job will inform your life. So in terms of, that can be in terms of your hours, in terms of your salary, in terms of your lifestyle, in whatever way that you want to, you know, kind of to plan your life or kind of at least the first couple of years, you want to make sure that that matches your passion and also mm -hmm. your skills, right? And so yep. I love science. I love research. I'm currently in a field where I am interfacing with a ton of science and a ton of research. Mm -hmm. But this idea of like, I have to fight for... Asma, oh. I don't want to say this because what if somebody does want to do this? I don't want to lead them astray. Like, I don't want them to feel bad. It's your life story, right? So even if you yeah. said something... Even if you said, oh, I would never touch industry, someone who decides to go into industry is going to feel bad. If you said, I want to go home and have babies, someone who chooses not to do that is going to feel bad. So unfortunately, yeah. life choices are going to make someone feel excluded, but they're yeah. your life choices. You're not saying anyone else needs to do it like that, or are you? <laughs> no, 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 not at all. Okay. I, I didn't think so. Yeah, so making sure making sure that the you know your passion, your skill set matches the kind of uh, what the job can do for you. So uh, I know this sounds really cheesy, but I learned of this thing called ikigai, which also could be the incorrect pronunciation and incorrect uh, interpretation. But <laughs> for like pop culture purposes, it's it's what I what I mean. So it's this kind of Venn diagram of four things, which is um, what you love, what you're good at what you can get paid for and what the world needs, right? Mm. So I think it's really important when you're going, even even at early stages in grad school, trying to understand what is in the middle of that ikigai, what's in that middle of that, um, I guess ikigai is the overlap of the four. What's in the middle of those four circles, right? And so mm -hmm. um, I think, you know, in grad school, you're kind of boosting what you're good at. So you are developing those skills, but the other components of like, what you love, I don't know if that changes over time. It just might manifest itself in different kinds of um, kind of ways. And mm -hmm. what the world needs, I, I some people might not think that this is important, but I feel that it's really important for me to be doing work that's impactful. Mm -hmm. um, but of course, that's you know um, you can decide if that's important for you. And so I think going through this process, I realized that, and you know what you can get paid for. So this is mm -hmm. something. It's a little bit weird to talk about, but I think it's important to talk about because this is just one of those things where everybody has different priorities. It's important for me to be able to value, to be valued for my skill set and also just what I bring to the table. Mm -hmm. I think that, um, you know, when we talk about things like money or salary, it gets a little bit icky because it's like, don't you want to just do your work for the sake of doing your work? It's like, no, I work because it 
sustains my life and mm-hmm. my passions. Being in academia is a really, really awesome job, but it's also not the most highest paying job for somebody that has a PhD, right? And also mm-hmm. the time commitment is really high. So you kind of have to balance this of like, do you love it that much to be able to kind of forego the kind of lifestyle that you'd have with different kinds of industries? So I think that's a really important question for whoever's trying to figure this out of kind of think about think about all of these components together and, you know, be honest with yourself. If you, for example, like need to be supporting your parents in a couple of years, you need mm-hmm. to support your family, you need to, you know, your own, if you have your own kids or whatever, you need to then salary is really important and that should fit within your um, within your decision making process. And so I think it's really strange to be thinking of these kinds of decisions in grad school because um, so I, I am doing a, an engineering grad um, PhD program, which as a quick disclaimer is always paid in the United States. I think some people do not know that. And I just want to make sure everybody knows that you get paid to do a PhD in engineering. Uh, and then also some sciences. It's not a lot, but you do get paid and you do get health insurance. Just in case anybody's wondering. <laughs> Same in Canada, by the way. <laughs> Same. Yeah, exactly. I think a lot of because the humanities are not like this. So it's not just five more years of school. Like you don't pay for tuition. It's um, in case that feeds into your decision making process at all. Mm-hmm. But in grad school, when you're making literally pennies, right, it's really difficult to be like, well, how do I make you know, any kind of money, even like a postdoc salary is higher than mine, but it's really important to kind of think about um, what comes down the line. And I am mm-hmm. focusing a lot on things uh, like money things, because I'm assuming that you will figure out what you love. You're, if you're in grad school, or if you're thinking about grad school, you kind of have a good idea of what you love. And also it's a little bit of a you know, trying to understand the world around you is really important in terms of what the world needs. So you mm-hmm. you already have that kind of thing. And also, if you're listening to this podcast, I think uh, in general, people, you know, you you probably want to have some impact where you're interested in learning about people who are impactful. Uh, and then what you're good at, that's kind of the circle that uh, expands over time. You you can never have too little skills, right? The better, the more diverse, the the more versatile your skill set is with regards to what you're good at, the better decision making you can have right whatever whenever that circle gets a lot bigger that central area also gets bigger anyways that's why I focus on the paid for thing because I think it's really important when you transition out of being a student to try and think about like it's you know I'll I'll talk about my experience when I was when I was a student a couple weeks ago (laughs) my my whole life was on pause right I didn't really think about anything else because you know, my grad school experience was a little bit not the best and also very all consuming. And so in looking for a job, it was really important for me to figure out where what I want to be doing and how I can be valued, um, which is a very long winded answer to your question. (laughs) I appreciate it nonetheless. And you bring up a very valid point about money in STEM. And I suddenly thought, why is it that in STEM careers in particular, we're shamed for wanting to be paid appropriately? Because as mm-hmm. a business person, someone can walk into a corporate office and say, I know what I bring to the table. I'm mm-hmm. demanding 500 grand as my salary, and I'm not going to walk out of here with anything other than that. And sure, the people can say, no, we're not going to pay you Did that you much, and you can go somewhere else. Grand? There's some people who make that kind of money, you know, like. Asma, oh my God, I want to walk into a business firm and be like, I am value, I value myself five hundred. My, oh my as a postdoc, because I was looking for positions last year, they just tell you that what you're going to get paid is 
X amount of money, $40,000 or in the UK, I think it's 33,000 pounds. So they tell you what the number is and you go, okay. And then you move on with your life. You can't really negotiate. Like there's not a lot. Yeah. It's not a lot of money if you really think about it for being so specialized. Right. We have a skill set that not anyone could just walk in and be trained in in a week. There are years Mm -hmm. and years and years of experiments and expertise that we've accumulated, but we are shamed into asking Mm -hmm. for what we're worth. Why do you think that is? So I think a part of it is due to, you know, as a grad student, the whole idea is that, you know, you're here for five years, six years, maybe less if you're doing a different kind of program. And then it's kind of like I can survive on breadcrumbs for X amount of years because afterwards there's something brighter, right? So I think, mm. you know, um, I'll kind of make a very quick aside here of like people experience um, different kinds of abuse during their graduate experience and they kind of put up with it because mm-hmm. that's kind of both because it's, you know, there's not a lot of support, but also because they think, hey, um, it's five years I'll, or it's like there's two more years left, three more years left. I'll get over it. But mm-hmm. I will advise very strongly against that as somebody who had, you know, not the best experience in grad school of like now that I'm working, I have to unlearn a lot of the defense mechanisms that I had of like a lot of these anxieties that I had. And mm-hmm. so it's not just, you know, you're in your formative years. It's really important for you to be making decisions and I'm talking to you as the audience, but whoever, <laughs> whomever this is relevant to. Um, but it's really important to to think about the long-term ramifications of your decision-making. Is of like, it might just be a couple of years, but just think about how this kind of training is feeding into your general, um, uh, you know, your, your work style and like who you are as a person. Mm-hmm. I think that's really important to note. But kind of back to why this is the case, I think... You know, because we're trying to pursue science, there's really not a lot of room for. Asma, I don't know. That's a really hard question. It's just a systemic problem, right? Where people are not valued. And it's so interesting to me because, you know, when you think about like tech companies, Mm -hmm. the people who are making the most money are typically not the people who are the like the scientists, right? Mm -hmm. They make a fair amount of money. Of course, they're comfortable. They're living their life, but they're not the ones making millions of dollars a year, Mm -hmm. right? Unless, you know, they have like a business degree. So it's really interesting to think about, you know, maybe somebody could respond and say, hey, like maybe this just isn't the kind of thing that gets you money just because of the I have no idea as much. I I mean, the only thought that I can really process at the moment is I think people prey on other people's nobility or other people's passions. They prey on other people's, Mm. I don't even know what another word could be. But I mean, it's even present in other industries where as a record producer, you make infinitely more money than the person singing on the record. But the talent is the person singing. As Mm -hmm. a person who makes movies, it's the guy who owns Warner Brothers that makes the money. He hasn't touched a camera, but he makes all the money. And you're preying on the fact that this person has a passion for art or has a passion Mm -hmm. for science or has a a passion for understanding mankind or has a passion Mm -hmm. for animals or has a passion for X, Y, Z. And that's the feeling that I kind of get just thinking about it. And it's Mm -hmm. always the business side of things that exploits that. I never thought about the parallels, but you're absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah, because I just thought about it. It's not a STEM problem, but it is a power problem and it's a business problem. We've commodified our passions, but not appropriately. 
Our passion should be right. worth much more than they get paid for, if you really think about it. Like, yeah. your talents should not be that cheap. Someone coordinating right. yeah. the talents shouldn't make mm-hmm. that much more money than the person who actually possesses those talents. It kind of, there's a lot of things that are systematic because if we think about the, so you do make money as a PhD in STEM in um, in the both the United States and Canada, but it's not a lot. So you, you probably can't support like having kids on that salary unless mm-hmm. you have like another salary, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and also considering the fact that you're working most of the time or like, you know, depending on your PhD experience. So thinking about who are the types of people who can actually go to grad school or mm-hmm. like apply to grad school and like stay in grad school, right? Yeah. You know, we we feel grateful that like, you know, if you get into an accident or like your family has an accident, like you have health insurance to kind of be able to support them or like maybe um, if something disastrous happens, you have some kind of backup, but a lot of people don't. So there's this phenomenon that happens in academia that I've seen so many times. And it's really, I, I encourage whoever's listening to kind of try to see if you can see that. There's this conf- confirmation bias of like, I hear people being like, hey, you know, I'm in engineering and there's not a lot of women engineering. There's not a lot of people of like different races in engineering, at least, you know, from the United States, there's, there are international people. And so I've heard a lot of people be like, you know, I'm so sorry for saying this. This is not my um, my uh, thought at all. I'm just communicating it. I apologize for whatever hurt this may apply to your audience. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, it's like, I don't see a lot of Black people in engineering. They're just not interested in engineering. Mm. And that is confirmation bias. It's because yeah. you're looking around yourself and you're like, hey, I don't see Black people. Therefore, I make this terrible, fallacious argument yeah. of they don't like it. Where you don't think about the other things of what, you know, actually goes into somebody getting into the program. Yeah. It's it's just, it's awful. You know, we have to think about these things. And it's not just socioeconomic. It's, it's also people's implicit biases, right? It's, mm-hmm. like, it's not just that, you know, somebody doesn't have money to apply. But if they apply, they have excellent, you know, there's so much research being done on this of, you know, the way that people perceive your name or the way mm-hmm. that they perceive your experiences based on, you know, what they think about your race or whatever. It's so pervasive. And it's, you know, and again, I'm sure it's pervasive in other fields, but I can talk about STEM. It's just really disturbing to see people who are like self-proclaimed experts. You know, we think of these people as highly educated and they make these awful arguments. So there was this committee, for example, uh, that was made up in our department. And, and you know, I noticed that it was made up of uh very well-meaning group of friends that all ended up being like white guys and I'd asked one of them I was like hey like why don't you have diversity and they were like well nobody really asked and the when I first learned about the committee was when I learned that it had been you know it had been created so I was like I was not involved in the creating process how you know it's just thinking about those things and then you know I was telling one of them I was like if you make this kind of committee now when you have a job you're gonna you know hiring people and putting people in good positions that remind you of your friends right so it's so important when you have the opportunity to create diversity it's it might be uncomfortable because they're not your best friends but this is a professional setting Mm -hmm. in a professional setting you need to have this kind of thing so it's infuriating I'm probably not doing a good job of explaining it but it's it's just so infuriating to kind of see this kind of thing happen in academia where everybody's like we're above this, we're like neutral, you know, we don't see race, we don't see gender. It's like, absolutely you do. You're like worse than everybody else, right? So precisely. I do love the fact that we can have these kinds of conversations because both of us are minoritized, but in different ways. Can you speak (laughs) to that experience, a little bit of standing out, being one of a kind and almost feeling like you have a spotlight on you when you enter these spaces? 
Sure. So I think I spoke a little bit about this in the last episode. Yes. I, I'm not going to delve too much into it, but I think something that I kind of um, I spoke about earlier uh, here today was also this internalization that sometimes we do of, you know, if you're a minority in a group, this is a very natural defense me- mechanism. And I'm about to tell you that I did it. So, you know, don't feel bad if this happens to you, too, of like you try to internalize it. So I learned something very nice from somebody whose name I totally forgot because uh, memory loss is very normal <laughs> or it's been, it's been a huge part of my grad school experience. Oh. Anyways, they were like when you have uh, like one, it, it was about women, but we can apply this to other types of minority communities. If you have like one woman, it's tokenism. When you have two, there's kind of competition because you're trying to see like one versus the other. Like you need to have, it's not like if you have one woman on your committee or like one woman in your department, that's great. You're, you're diverse, right? Like mm-hmm. you gotta have some kind of parity, right? That's, that's the only time where it matters because when you're one, like I have been in the majority of my experiences, yeah. I think I can say that I have been the only one that looks like me. Mm-hmm. There's so many different side effects. So I am a very high strung person. Naturally, I have very high standards for my life, but I also mm-hmm. felt that I had to kind of boost those even more. So it becomes this really challenging thing of like, I have to be like five times better or Mm. I I won't say five times better because that sounds really conceited and also (laughs) not true. But I had to work five times harder to kind of prove my worth and kind of prove that I deserve to be in the place that I was. So in that way, it was very, very challenging. And then in the other way, I think I'll uh, talk briefly, you know, when I first started my um, engineering classes, I wasn't really the only woman, but I was like, at least, I, I mean, it was, it was definitely not parody, right? It was like maybe mm-hmm. two of us or maybe three of us. And in, yeah. in our whole like uh, graduating class, it can't have been more than a handful or maybe a little bit more. I don't remember, but it was, I remember like during my orientation and I still cringe at myself, but I have to learn for myself. What a, during one of my orientations, we like went in a circle and we had to say a fun fact. It was a group of 12 students mm-hmm. of, you know, pre-college students that, you have to say a fun fact about yourself. And it was like, we had to do a couple of fun facts. So one of my fun facts, I was like, hey, I'm the only girl here. Because it was a lot of people and I was the only girl. And yeah. then when I, I, it was so cringy because I was like, that doesn't make me special. Like, it's not a nice thing that I'm the only, like, I have to think about why am I the only girl? Mm. Like, who, it was just, it was, sorry to share that cringy experience with you. Please don't do that <laughs> if you're ever in that <laughs> position. You know, it took me some time to to kind of reach out the other ladies in my department and, and you know, do a lot to support them. Because mm. when you're alone or when you feel alone, it becomes really challenging because, like, you could be the smartest person in the world. But if you don't have support, it's really easy to slip up on your classwork. It's really yeah. easy. You know, there were there were a couple classes where I was like, I really don't want to go to discussion because I feel like all my questions are stupid. So I didn't never went to discussion. And as a result... All my questions, you know, were not answered, even though they were maybe not that stupid. So I fell a little bit behind and I had to seek out help from people who, you know, went through the same thing that I did. I want to say it's getting better, but I don't know. I hope it's getting better. I think, you know, we have to be optimistic because what we're doing, what you're, especially what you're doing here, is making it better, right? So we have to be optimistic about it. But, I mean, it's challenging. It is. I hope, it, I hope I'm contributing to... Yeah. It being a little bit better. It's weird because obviously the reason why I started this is because I felt like I didn't truly have a safe space where I was mm-hmm. when I was doing my PhD. And I was a little bit tired of putting on that brave face 
of having to deal with things and see things in the world and not like what I was seeing and then coming to the lab and being like, oh, I have to be my regular joyous, happy self because even if I were honest and I told people, oh, I'm kind of feeling down today because of whatever has happened, they go, but you don't know those people or why do you care or but you made it. Why couldn't everyone just be like you if it's possible because of you? And I'm just like, you guys don't understand that by creating model minority status, you're actually just harming a lot more people than doing good. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And it, you know, for myself, it took me a while to recognize that. I think that that was a big part of my, you know, my non scientific experience during my undergrad of having to realize that, like, me being the only one is not it's not like a nice thing for me right it's not I shouldn't be congratulated because I'm the only one I should be thinking about what what is keeping other people out right or like you know I'm not the one making decisions what is you (laughs) is keeping people out (laughs) Um, and also you know there's this thing that's been bugging me for a while if you are a lady in a stem oriented grad program you might have had similar experiences where you go to you know we had like women in engineering or like women in science lunches Mm. and events like that which are excellent highly highly recommend you go even if you don't know anyone that's a place to make friends a plus Mm. just go (laughs) but there would always be a point at these kinds of events where you know towards the end Maybe people start talking about their horror stories where there's like maybe like 10 people left. And it's like the people that, you know, have had a really good conversation. So, you know, you can trust them. Right. Mm. And then slowly out of the woodwork, people are like, oh, I had a similar experience or like, oh, this person. And it becomes like you said, it becomes a safe space. But something that's been frustrating me recently is that, you know, those do not get communicated to the people in charge. And so Mm. I don't know. This was a big thing for me in grad school. Like, I don't know how to get people to care about things that don't affect them. And this is also like what's going on in the world today with like people who are like against vaccines. Like, yeah. what are you doing? What is happening? Right? It's <laughs> I like, know. Just because it doesn't affect you. And like public health with like wearing masks. Like, I don't know what's going on. I just, Seriously. It's been this really frustrating experience of like, you know, it's really excellent. I do not want to downplay this at all. It's so important to have a uh, uh, safe space to be able to communicate these things. It's so, so important to be able to, you know, talk about the things that challenge you, talk about how you overcome them such that they can help other people without feeling like you're less than because you're mm-hmm. talking about your challenges or you're less than because, you know, you didn't survive in grad school. You had to drop out. That's completely valid, super normal. But I feel mm-hmm. like people get shamed into not talking about it. Yeah. Um but at the same time, like to to resolve these, especially with a system that's so skewed like academia, which there's such huge power imbalances between ginormous uh, schools and institutions and departments, well-funded schools and, you know, uh, committees, mm-hmm. and then the grad student who's going to be out in three years. Like, how do we resolve that? I don't know. Call in. <laughs> I <laughs> want to hear your answers. I'm just kidding. But I, I mean, I really don't know. And that that's been really... That's been really bugging me. Do you have any thoughts? I've thought about that a lot as well, just because, I mean, I've talked about this with you. There are things that I saw that I contemplated talking about with higher ups when I was doing my graduate degree, and I just felt like I couldn't. Mm -hmm. I think the only solution that I can come up with, and it's probably not the best solution because the onus is now put on someone else, I think allyship is real. And Mm -hmm. if you have more power than another person, you should use that power. Mm-hmm. So for instance, 
in the lunches that you were talking about, where maybe women are talking about their experiences, maybe it's harassment, or maybe it's just being discounted. You say something and no one listens to you, and then a, a man says it, and all of a sudden it's the best idea in the world. Those kinds of experiences can be Can't actually see really me, but awful. Eye rolling. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> those microaggressions can accumulate, and then it's frustrating, and you're like, "Why isn't my voice heard?" If a man in that situation, another fellow man goes, excuse me, she was talking and that was her idea. Allow her to finish. I think that Mm -hmm. has more and it's so annoying because again, it makes it seem like only men can interrupt men. But I think use your power and say, you are not going to disrespect this person like that. That is unacceptable. And she's Mm -hmm. going to speak right now. And don't do it after the fact. I don't like it when people go, oh, I'm going to text you and tell you it was really rude what so-and-so did. I don't want the text. I don't want to hear from you. If you didn't say it in the moment, I don't believe that it really bothered you. Say something. If you have power. Now, if you and I are graduate students and we're Mm -hmm. like at the bottom of the totem pole and both of us realize (laughs) that, oh, we're being disrespected, another professor could come along because they have comparable power status. Mm-hmm. And say you're disrespecting your students. And I think that's supposed to be the premise of having a supervisory committee. It doesn't always mm-hmm. work that way. But that's where it's supposed to come from, right? These people are mm-hmm. all at the professor level or assistant professor level. So they can challenge each other in a way that doesn't seem like you're challenging authority. You're just presenting your ideas. I mean, I hope it works like that, but it really doesn't, right? Or like it hasn't in my experience. Just people because okay, because something happens, which you know, this is a realistic part of what we have to understand. As this is only about grad students, this is not related to other things because of the the nature of the system. Mm-hmm. Of like, you know, uh, the relationship between the professors is much longer than the relationship of you with the mm. professor, right? So like, if somebody's having a bad time, like worst case scenario, they complain to you for five years and then they're gone. But like. <laughs> Picking somebody to, to like get, yeah, I mean, sorry to be negative. It's 2020. I have literally nothing left in me. <laughs> but the, yeah, I mean, it's it's challenging. You're right that you the onus is absolutely on other people to kind of have to speak up because sometimes that's just, that's the only person they'll listen to, right? So yeah. they don't listen to you. But um, I'll also quick quickly add this quick note of, um, I don't really care who you are, what kind of person you are. You can be the shyest person or the most I don't like the word extroverted but you can be the most not shy person in the world seek out mentors and mentor people as much as you can it's going to be infinitely valuable for you and infinitely valuable for other people mm-hmm. it's just like it's so important to have mentors and you know it's great to have friends and it's you know it's been such an honor to be your friend oh. um, but it's so important to have uh, people who kind of have gone down the same path as you mm-hmm. or like you know, are going down a path that you might want to go down and like try to talk to them, get their advice. It's just, it's so important and try to get their advice in a way that's not sugarcoated, right? Because, mm. you know, for friends, we try to be as sweet as possible because we want to maintain the relationships and also, you know, that's just how friendships work. Yeah, But you need somebody who's the same way of like, you know, they say that having a therapist is really important because they have no stake in your life, right? Mm. Like, rather than you complaining to a family member, you'd rather complain to somebody who's, like, not in your life. Mm. That's what I mean by mentors. Like, have somebody who, you know, like, if you make X decision versus Y, they're not going to not want to hang out with you because they don't hang out with you <laughs> anyway, right? <laughs> they're not your friends. <laughs> or, yeah. like, you can make friends with them. I think that's super, super important. And also mentor people. Pass it on. You know, it takes... 
yeah, we already talked about this, but it takes really small interactions to, you know, seed, add a little seed in somebody's mind. Maybe mm-hmm. they like something, maybe they don't. It's so important. And, you know, at the core of what I'm trying to tell you with this mentorship is your voice matters and your experiences matter. That's, I think you, if you understand that, you'll understand the importance of passing it on.